Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. I would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands that I work and live on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I offer my respects to their elders, past, present and emergent, and to their kin, both human, plant, animal and elemental. Let's go. Hello and welcome back to The Familiar Strange. It's been a while, but thank you for tuning in to the second season. Now we've been brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and Pacific, and the College of the Arts and Social Sciences. Produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I'm your familiar stranger for today, Alex, together with our very own Deanna Cato, currently studying a Master's of Science Communication, who is normally doing all sorts of important stuff behind the scenes. Oh, hello. It's good to be here. We're also here with Sophie Chow, postdoctoral researcher at the University of Sydney with research interests in indigeneity, capitalism and ecology. Hi there, Alex. It's great to be here. And lastly, we have our regular contributor, Simon Theobald, who I've been told I'm not quite allowed to call a doctor yet, and so is our very own graduate. Is that correct? PhD graduate. That's right. Good to have you on the show as Good always. to be here. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight into today's episode. All right, so... Sophie, what are you thinking about this week? Well, I suppose this week I've been really interested in thinking about what we do as anthropologists, how we do our research, with whom we do it and why in the context of a global pandemic. I've been really asking myself questions about ethnographic practice, the need to be creative at this particular point in time, the need to think about the temporality of our research. I've been thinking about the way in which we're all sort of suspended in this pandemic, its crises and its potential afterlives. Yeah, I was speaking with someone just this morning about how her research, she was originally not sure what she was going to do for it. She's doing honours. And now she's got this whole topic of studying people. I'm not too sure if I can speak about it, but about how their lives have been affected by this because they're a community who travel a lot, who don't have a permanent residence. And you don't really hear about how all of this is affecting them. So I suppose having the opportunity, I mean, as terrible as it is to be in that situation but having that opportunity to study things from a different perspective or that otherwise you wouldn't think about I guess it's been quite interesting. I mean, it's a really important question and the way in which the COVID context is making us rethink the questions we're asking, the themes that matter, the ethics of doing anthropological research and how this context is shifting some of the priorities for our interlocutors in the field. What I've been doing with my Papuan companions in Indonesian West Papua is actually working through Skype and Zoom to train local community members themselves to be para-ethnographers, sharing knowledge about the toolkit of an anthropologist and getting them to do that work, which in many ways is the direction in which a decolonial anthropology should be going anyways. Perhaps this is a generative moment in terms of rethinking joint production of knowledge. Can I just ask as well, Sophie, what's the situation with COVID in West Papua? Because I really like this idea of training other people who are there to use ethnographic methods sort of to help collect data and things. But has there had to be any considerations for them going around to other people? Because they're still 
doing those kinds of face-to-face interactions, right? Mm, yeah. I mean, the reported cases um, that they're vastly underdocumented uh, in West Papua, um, which of course is one of the big issues with any statistics surrounding COVID. But the paraethnographers that I'm working with are really doing fieldwork in their own home villages. They've all left the cities where they were working and they've gone back home. And so they're doing work within their own communities. Uh, many of them are doing masters in anthropology in the city. And so they're taking these kinds of tools and theories and approaches back and also critiquing them and challenging them as well. So I'm learning a huge amount just from the way that they're understanding what anthropology is and what anthropology does. So interesting. I wonder what kind of big disciplinary shift this might all cause as well in the long term. I also hear potential contributors to the familiar strange, just saying. (laughs) My only input is to really kind of riff on what Sophie was saying, wondering about this kind of paraethnography as a a way into thinking about a kind of non-colonial anthropology. I'm in contact with my interlocutors and compatriots in Iran on digital media and so on quite often. But I was thinking that in some ways, in the Iranian context, I had the privilege of being a white and being a foreigner and i think that allowed a greater degree of capacity to conduct interviews and so on in circumstances that other that iranians might not find themselves in circumstances in which for our interlocutors themselves it might be kind of dangerous to do field work how do we work with a community for whom you want to hand over the tools of ethnography to but for in some ways the process of doing ethnography is really contingent on the outsider's role as having certain kind of privileges which aren't necessarily given out to the indigenous community themselves it is a challenge i mean my field site in ecuador i was dealing with upper middle class bureaucrats as i always mention every podcast i've been told every podcast (laughs) is true (laughs) intimately familiar with the middle class bureaucrats you did work with alex Yes, I think they know them by name now, like personally. But even in that context where I'm going to be honest, saying I'm Alex Deleu from the University of Melbourne, then saying I'm Alex from the Australian National University. They don't know these places, but they sound impressive. And that opened doors for me in a way that even people doing similar things to myself would not necessarily have had access. And how do you square that? I mean, I think it's important and useful information. I hope that I managed to get out there. But how do you square that away with what people can already do? And that power imbalance, I don't have a solution. I suppose that really goes into your positionality in general. And even in these new creative ways, all of that needs to be considered before you go and do ethnography or before you try and pass on that toolkit to someone else. No, I think it's a really important question that you've raised, Simon, and it has implications beyond the fieldwork and beyond COVID. This question of remaining accountable in that joint production of knowledge, for instance, when it comes to publication outputs, um, the article or the monograph may not be the format or the mode through which the findings of our power ethnographers are best communicated and conveyed. Got to keep it moving. So, Simon, are you thinking beyond COVID? Am I thinking beyond COVID? I don't know. I think my personal life is structured by COVID. But one of the things that I've been thinking about for a while is this idea of human difference. The kind of impetus for me to think about this was related to the kind of mythopoetic imaginings of the Yazidi people. For the audience who might know the Yazidi people are an ethnic religious minority in northern Iraq. But in the Yazidi creation stories, there is a notion that there were two creations, two original creations of humanity. One which descended from Eve, which formed the body of all humanity apart from Yazidis. And then there's the separate Yazidi creation, which comes from Adam. How, if the Yazidis understand themselves to be separate from the rest of us and a different form of 
creation. How do we then, as anthropologists who are trying to be felicitous to these narratives, not as being kind of peripheral, but as being really meaningful stories about the way in which people understand themselves, understand their interactions with the rest of the world? And I say this as someone who hasn't done an anthropology of the Yazidis. How do we move forward with an anthropology that says humans have some kind of shared experience when the people we're, we're interviewing say, our creation narratives tell us that we are ontologically distinct from the rest of you? To my mind, it's a crazy thing. It starts to border and I say this with some trepidation, but it starts to border dangerously on multi-species ethnography, no? Just listening to you talking, Simon, um, it's bringing to mind the work of the anthropologist Michael Scott, who works among the Arosi peoples in Makira, the Solomon Islands. And he also, in a similar sort of vein to what you've described, looks at the ways in which Arosi understand their matrilineages to be the bearers of discrete categorical essences, um, both material and symbolic. For me, it's always power and hierarchy that also is part of that picture, right? We can be different to others, but do we consider ourselves better? Um, is that difference also implying a superiority of sorts or not, right? And that's a question that multi-species ethnographers, you brought up the term, Alex, are also grappling with. And how do you embrace special or multi-specific difference whilst also acknowledging the power hierarchies in which we position some species or categories within that species as superior in one way or another? And your mention of power also got me thinking about also how does the boundary maintenance occur? Because, you know, I am assuming these descendants of Adam are sufficiently equipped to have children with the descendants of Eve. But then when we see time and time again in anthropology is how that boundary maintenance occurs to keep these categories separate, that they can, after supposedly thousands and thousands of years, still consider themselves so separate from the rest of humanity means there must be some sort of power relation and boundary maintenance occurring within that group, no? I think for a lot of kind of small ethno-religious communities, the Middle East gets an unfortunate rap as being a homogenous place when it's actually hyper-diverse and full of these kind of minority communities that don't get a lot of kind of news time. There's a dangerous kind of territory here because there's a construction of the question of superiority and of power hierarchies and so on, and of people saying that we are different from another, which kind of abuts against liberal notions of the fundamental kind of equality of all human beings. And it's particularly hard when groups are discriminated against. I mean, Yazidis, for instance, are the victims of discriminations and have this kind of internal narrative of, I guess you would argue, of difference, but that is also understood in some ways as being a matter of superiority. How do we work with ideologies that are contrary to anthropology's own notions? I mean, I don't want to presume that every anthropologist is a kind of liberal, left-wing, bleeding heart, but a lot of us are, for instance. What do we do with ideologies that are profoundly contradictory to our own understanding of the way in which the worlds that we would like to live in should be? The thing that immediately comes to mind for me in that when you come across people who are, you know, different political ideologies, for instance, there's this notion that we've talked about recently in science communication, like in a course that I was doing, before you make a judgment call, just pausing, trying to step away from it before you then analyze it. And while I don't have any answers for Simon's huge um, question, and I'd be really curious to see if anyone listening does, it's really tricky because like, who has the right to do something? And if you were to train in anthropology, of course, there's this huge issue with the lineage of anthropology being very colonial, of course, and we're trying to, to change that. But then if you were to get someone from that group to then train in anthropology under the pretense that, well, they would have a better, be in a better position 
position to do an anthropology of the social group, but then they're already being influenced by the history of anthropology. Like, it just is tricky. I mean, this is hurting my head so much, Simon. <laughs> I just think, not necessarily critical questions, but they're questions that keep me at least awake at night. I feel like they're going to keep me awake at night as well now, Simon. Well, in that case, I'll use that as a nice little segue. D, what has been keeping you awake at night? But something that has been on my mind, I really want to unpack anthropologically the effect that COVID has had on places where people train as a group. This comes very personally from my own karate practice, but we have this huge importance on the dojo as like a sacred place to train. I mean, anyone who's thought about karate usually comes with those notions of people dressed in white, kicking, punching together unanimously in a special place. And it creates this kind of, as Durkheim would say, like the collective effervescence. Collective effervescence. That's a bit of a tongue twister. But because of COVID, obviously, there were changes that need to be made. This dojo, in what way is it a special place? My experience of like Taekwondo back in the day was at like a rec centre that half an hour before had been kids doing, I don't know, dodgeball or something. And then once we were gone, was probably going to have people playing like squash. No, it is a shared space. For instance, we do have people who do yoga before we come into the hall, but we do kind of change the space and try and transform it into this sacred place. So we bring in special items that signify this is a traditional dojo space. So there's a picture hanging in the middle of the front wall of one of the figureheads of our style. We have little Okinawan shisa, lion dragons kind of figures that we put on this little table. Um, We have some katana on the walls, have some sticks, you know, (laughs) just to try and create this. It's like a shrine in the space. I mean, I've been thinking of writing a second piece on virtual techniques of the body and the possibilities for collective effervescence or effervescence on online mediums like Zoom, for instance, right? Um, Because it's such an awkward space in so many ways. Sometimes you show up to a Zoom meeting and you're in the wrong link. So you just sit there and no one's there. Or you join a meeting and there's a hundred people and you don't want to say anything because you don't want everyone to hear you. And then there's that really weird phenomenon where everybody sort of drops off at the end of the meeting one by one and you're left with some random person that you've never met and just kind of have to say bye even though you don't actually know them. And it's just really fascinating for me. You know, do you put the camera on? Do you mute yourself? Can you be having a glass of wine if your camera's not on during like a departmental meeting? meeting so there's everything that's happening behind that scene and ending the call of course that sort of you know sense of suddenly being alone when you were never actually with anybody in the first place i just find it fascinating um and funnily enough it's fascinating the way in which covid is changing the way in which people can gather in a sort of corporeal way in places and because at the same time in some ways the silver lining has been that it's opened up certain spaces for communities that are far more expansive across the globe right so you can be in a yoga studio on zoom with people who are in the US and in Europe at the same time. There's an expansion going on of these communities at the same time as they're essentially quite disembodied. I just want to say quickly, it's really interesting that you mentioned that allowing for the expansion of communities because that is one thing that has come out of this is that by having the virtual dojo, we've been able to have the opportunity to train with senseis from across the world where usually there might be a once a year opportunity where we fly them over to Australia and then do a big training camp with them 
Instead, there's been all of these different online gashikus and big training events across the globe. I think it's really interesting the limits of what of how far the digital effervescent landscape can work. I actually wrote my honors thesis on the use of digital technologies by conservative religious groups who normally issue digital technologies. I worked with a, a Jewish group. The, the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community traditionally understood as being very opposed to the use of te- technologies, and a lot of them are. But one of them in particular is quite active on the internet and so on, and has really kind of embraced the use of technology to reach community members across the globe. But one of the things they've always been reticent to do is to do actual prayer over a Zoom process. You can read the Torah from your iPhone, for instance. There's no problem in doing that. But a minyan, which is a group of 10 male Jewish people in this kind of ultra-conservative sect requires 10 people to be together. So the bodies do have to be next to each other. It's not something that you can kind of share over Zoom. So the limitations and where the kind of this idea of collective effervescence begins and ends in the kind of digital online sphere, it's a really interesting experience. And I think it'll be increasingly something that groups have to grapple with, not only in relation to COVID, but as people move across the world. And I mean, something they've already experienced as diasporas mean that communities are less and less able to reach each other and that question of whether we say you know the bodily experience of religious kind of invocation is something that has to be done in person or whether it's something that can be done online is a kind of an interesting 21st century problematic for a lot of religious communities and obviously the karate community as well yeah because it really gets to those fundamental ideas of significance like actual meaning behind these practices that in sometimes it really cuts to the heart of what do these things mean to us but i think i'm gonna have to end it there and get to talk about myself so i mentioned earlier i'm in the writing up stage of the phd so whereas you know fresh out of the field i could read my field notes and i'm like yeah totally i remember 100 like i can picture this room in my mind the next year you're like yeah i can kind of picture this room in my mind and getting further and further away. And I mean, at times I'm surprised by my own field notes. I mean, those who are even further from the fieldwork than I am, how are you guys managing this? With difficulty. I think to quote an old anthropologist at ANU, you have to write very good field notes and to collect as much data as you possibly can. So you have in, in kind of any multimodal forms that that, whatever that takes, you know, whether it's recording things like soundscapes or whether it's doing, I don't know, even things like I took lots of maps and I made maps with my interlocutors when I was there. And things like that really helped me kind of revisualize what I was experiencing. But it's, yeah, it's, I think it's a really interesting question you raise, Alex. How do we keep these things fresh in our mind? Even then, because this is just how ephemeral anthropology is, there's still that moment. Like there are times you're reporting on a moment and that moment's gone. So even if you manage, if you've got really good interlocutors help you out and keep chatting to you, maybe, you know, like Sophie said, they're doing their own research and you can confirm that moment can never be revisited. And I recently, like I've known this for a while, but I recently just, just, it was just a snippet by good old Dr. Carl on how easy it is to instill fake memories in people. You suggest something, come back to it later, and they misremember their own experience. Just how imperfect we are remembering those things. And it's, I don't know, what this is something anthropology's grappled with forever, but it just made me really think about it in the context of my own work. All those little things that I think I remember, but do I remember? Your entire field trip was a false memory, Alex. You didn't actually go to... <laughs> I've never been to Ecuador. Uh, you've never been to Ecuador, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Sophie, you're at the point of turning your stuff into a book. Do you trust your memories for the book? Oh, that's a very big and important question, which I think is as much an epistemological one as it is an ethical one. And it's a question that I'm facing at the moment in writing this book. I'm writing a book in which over half of the protagonists have died or disappeared under mysterious 
circumstances and the other half I will never see again because I am not going back to Indonesia in the foreseeable future for political reasons. You know, I'm working with stories and memories of beings that only exist now as memories and they are no longer part of this world. So how do I do justice to those memories and memorialize that experience and my own position within it in an ethical and fleshy kind of way? I think being honest about the partiality of memories is super important in terms of that reflexivity. We write remembered villages and we write remembered places and they are as partial and patchy as life itself, I suppose. I think these are all questions that are often asked or should be considered when we do read ethnographies. What makes it valid but also trustworthy? As well though, the memories that your interlocutors, participants I suppose, share with you, that's their interpretation of that memory as well. So memories can be manipulated obviously or, or thought of in, in different ways than how things actually happen because they're interpreting something as well and then you're interpreting their interpretation and there's all these levels where it's I don't think we can ever get a 100% this is exactly how it was because we're all seeing the world through different lenses and in different ways how you go about making sure that your field notes are or that you remember them as accurately as possible I'm not sure as well there a lot of the projects I've done have been auto-ethnographic because I've done smaller projects on the karate dojo before if I asked everyone just stop practicing for a second so I can write down this really important note. You know, I had to constantly be relying on my memory, which goodness, what a headache that gave me. Trying to think about doing a physical activity, but then also remembering things. I had to try and forget certain people because they didn't want to be included in the data collection. So I was tampering then with my memory and with my notes, writing it up. There's a dilemma. There's a need to show what anthropology does outside the scope of just saying, well, we very carefully jot down people's memories and we make good notes and we don't forget things. I think we have to show the kind of richness of the stories that anthropology can produce and, and talk to people as well as much about how the fact that history, sociology, even science are stories that we tell ourselves about how we understand the world work. So yeah, I think don't worry too much about your memory, Alex. There's a lot of philosophical space out there for you to forget things and you to remember other things. <laughs> Look, well, whilst there might be plenty of philosophical space out there, we don't have much space left here, unfortunately. So I'm going to have to call the end of the show. Thank you very much, guys, for participating. I'd like to thank... Sophie. Thanks so much, Alex. I'll thank Dee. Thank you. And thanks to Simon. No worries. And seeing you out is me, your host, Alex. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Ford. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes or dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash The Familiar Strange strange not the strange familiars which is another fun podcast just not ours you can find the show notes including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com if you'd like to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to myself or the other hosts of the program please email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com tweet at tfs tweets or look us up on facebook and instagram music by pete dabro with special thanks to nick farrelly will grant martin pierce and maud Rowe. And thanks for listening to the first episode of our new season. Hope to see you again in two weeks. Until next time, keep talking strange.